0: Begin reading in verse
1: 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. By the way, that's an important verse there. I'm not preaching on that this morning, but there was a promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would be a Messiah that would sit on the throne and reign forever. After Israel was scattered, the question always was, where would this Messiah come from? Where would this King who would reign eternally? Because they pretty much were in captivity. They never became the nation they were going to become. Uh, They never were under a true king, but then Jesus' birth announcement tells you that he is the promised one to fulfill that prophecy. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, verse 33, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? In other words, how can this happen if I've had no sexual relations with a man? Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel chapter 1, as we see his account dealing with Joseph. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife and did not know her or have sexual relations with her till she brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Mm -hmm. Lord, we just ask that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word. May you minister to each heart here, Lord. May you do something that I am unable to do and I am incapable to do. And that would be to apply your word eternally to the hearts of every individual here, and that you would bring about the transformation that you desire in each person. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I think you would agree that Christmas is the most celebrated event in human history. Different countries celebrate different people and different holidays. You can go to Germany, and they've got their own special holidays, and they've got their own days where they celebrate dignitaries. Just like the United States, we have President's Day, we have Fourth of July, we have Memorial Day, and we have our own set of days where we celebrate certain events in the history of this country, certain people who made an impact in this country, and that's true all over the world. That's true all over the world. But when it comes to Christmas, Christmas transcends borders. Christmas, in celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, is evident wherever Christianity has gone, which is almost every nation. And so it doesn't matter where you go, it is a celebrated event. And so therefore, it is the most celebrated event in the history of the world. It is unique because you're not celebrating the achievement of a man. It is unique because you're not celebrating the accomplishments of a great person. This is a celebration of what God has done. It is a commemoration of the sovereign, eternal God breaking into human history as a man. Christmas is celebrating the most extraordinary event and the most extraordinary person in the history of the world. But as the years tick off and the more we celebrate Christmas... We are in danger of losing just how extraordinary it is. I mean, Christmas today seems to be more centered around material things. Everybody's got a sale. Black Friday now starts on Wednesday. And so it's centered greatly around material things. The songs, the Christmas songs that we are so familiar with, the words run through our minds, but do they still dance in our hearts? the christmas decorations around the house they somehow can can drown out the extraordinary event that this really is and and people begin to lose that all they they drive by a manger scene and oh it's the birth of jesus they get a christmas card in the mail and on the cover of the christmas card they will see a manger scene and and it no longer has the impact it does it can lose that sheen that it, it once had. And even though we look at like our passage this morning and the events, the people that are involved, it really is simple. Christmas is simple. They're, the people are simple. The place is simple. There's really nothing extraordinary about that. What makes it extraordinary is what God has done in His power in His power. And so, so as we look at these passages this morning, which I preached on both of them in the years past, I'm taking a little bit of a different slant to it. I, I would like for you really to grab hold of the theme that God does the extraordinary through the ordinary. I think that you and I need to understand that. We not only need to understand that mentally, we need to live that by faith. That God continually does the extraordinary through the ordinary. And I'll begin with the place. The place that God chose to get the ball rolling was nothing extraordinary. It was Nazareth. It was Nazareth. And although Jesus would be ultimately born in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy, as Joseph had to go down and file for taxes... That Bethlehem was nothing significant either. Bethlehem was about three miles from Jerusalem. We visited the place. There's nothing significant about it. But here in Nazareth, God gets the ball rolling with this whole Christmas story with the birth announcement. And Nazareth is about as insignificant as it gets. Most scholars estimate the population to only be between 1,500 and 2,000 people. So when you see Nazareth listed as a city, it's far from a city. It's far from a city. It's more like a village. It's more like a town. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament or in the intertestamental Jewish writings leading up into the New Testament. Even Josephus, a Roman historian that wrote much about the, the times of Jesus Christ, never mentions Nazareth at all. Trade routes and roads passed near Nazareth, but the town itself wasn't located on any major trade route or road. In fact, most people outside of Israel would not even know what Nazareth is. And that's why at the birth announcement in Luke chapter 1, it says that Gabriel was sent to a city in Galilee, Nazareth. Galilee, they would understand. And they would need that as an identifying mark because Nazareth just isn't that well known like you and I know it to be today. When you and I hear Nazareth, automatically, boom, we think of the boyhood town of Jesus. But that wasn't the case then. That was unheard of. Wasn't identified as, you know, being anything significant. It's about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, 20 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. And Jerusalem lies about 70 miles south of Nazareth. It was kind of tucked away in the middle of nowhere, it was a, the original Nazareth sat in kind of a basin, so it, it wasn't even a city on a hill, really. In fact, when we go there today, when, when we visit Israel, we always go to Nazareth. And the most significant place there is really the church that was built there honoring the birth announcement to Mary. But the, the town still is simple. The town is still relatively hardly anything at all. People just don't go there. The only thing that draws them there was the fact that Jesus was raised there. It was out of the mainstream line of Jewish religion, and even though we know there was a synagogue there because Luke 4 tells us that Jesus preached there, but other than that, it really was quite nothing. In fact, Nazareth had a bad Reputation. It didn't have, it wasn't a city that was thought of in a good light. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, we see where Jesus calls Philip to follow him. And then Philip, wanting to follow Jesus, believing that this is the Messiah, goes and he gets Nathanael. And Nathanael comes along. And here we see where Philip tells Nathanael, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about who all the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael then replies and says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can see from that remark that Nazareth was not thought of in a good light. In fact, there was probably a religious relaxation to it. There was probably immorality. It just didn't have a good reputation whatsoever. I'm sure if it was up to you and I, we would have chose a different place to get the ball rolling on such a significant event, not Nazareth. What about Jerusalem? Jerusalem, the holy city, or even Rome, the capital of the world. That's a nice place. Why don't we just pick a couple people out of there? But Nazareth, Nazareth, there's nothing extraordinary about it. The only thing that's extraordinary about it today is that Jesus grew up there, and millions of people flocked there from all over the world. But not because it was a great city, not because it had anything to offer, it was because Jesus' presence was there. That's kind of like what God does in our lives. That's kind of what God does in our lives. That, you know, can anything good come out of Walter Colas? I mean, don't laugh at that. Plug your own name in there. Because prior to Christ, nothing good did come out of us, really. Maybe by the world standards, you were pretty good. But then all of a sudden, Jesus takes up residence in your heart, born in your heart. And now all of a sudden, good comes out of it. Not because you're anything special or you're anything significant, but because Jesus resides in you. That makes a difference. So the place is far from extraordinary, but also the people are far from extraordinary. And I don't know how often you've ever thought about this, but the person that God chose to be the stepfather to Jesus because Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit, that, that Joseph technically is Jesus' stepfather. Joseph was just a young man of 14 to 19 years old. I know a lot of people conjecture and say that Joseph must have been an older man because after Jesus is 12 years old in the Scriptures, he fades off the scenes. You don't read, much of, you don't read anything of Joseph later on. He's gone, and, and obviously everybody's in consensus that he died. He's not around the ministry of Jesus. He's not around the cross. When Jesus is crucified, Joseph is gone. And so people conjecture, well, he must have been older. And that's not true. That's reading into the Scriptures. Joseph was probably a young man of 14 to 19 years old. And we know that he was poor because after Jesus was born and they presented Jesus into the temple, the standard is to sacrifice a lamb for the woman's purification, but they couldn't even sacrifice the lamb. Luke 2 tells us that two turtle doves were offered instead of the lamb and the law provided for that if you were so poor that you couldn't offer a lamb this was the the way it would be done leviticus chapter 12 verse 8 tells us this it says and if she is not able to bring a lamb then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons one is a burnt offering the other is a sin offering so the priest shall make atonement for and she shall be clean so there was no money they were poor they were poor joseph was poor mary was poor Joseph was from the line of David, which is important because to fulfill the prophecy that was made that the Messiah would descend from the line of David, that Joseph is from that line just as Mary is. But he was no nobleman. He held no formal position in their country. He was a young carpenter or a stonecutter, which was basically a laborer. It's about as ordinary as you get. It's about as ordinary as you can get. Mary was no different. There was nothing extraordinary about Mary. I realize much doctrine has been made about Mary, but it's actually contrary to Scripture. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. We see in Matthew 1, what we read, verse 25, Joseph didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to Jesus. She was a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. She gave birth to Jesus, but after that, there were brothers and sisters that Jesus had. The Scriptures make that clear. You'll be amazed at how little the Bible actually says about Mary. Do it today. Go through. Read. Read the Gospels. Find out how much is said about her. Very little is said. Is she blessed among all women? Absolutely. Does she deserve a position of honor in Christianity? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the Apostle Paul, like the disciples, like Peter, crucified upside down. Yeah, absolutely she does. But does she deserve a position of worship where you pray to her? Absolutely not. What's happened is they've come up with doctrines to proclaim Mary as sinless. And yet when you read the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1, Mary herself says, God my Savior. The only reason you need a Savior is if there's sin in your life. And so Mary was not perfect. Mary was not this extraordinary woman that people make her out to be today. But the Bible does tell us that she found favor with God. She found favor with God. She was highly favored with God. The word for favor in that verse, by the way, in Luke chapter 1 is charis. It's the same word used for grace. In other words, God chose Mary out of grace. It wasn't because Mary deserved it or she was more holier than every other woman on the face of the planet. No, it was because God in His grace said, Mary, you're the woman. So often you and I struggle with this, am I worthy enough? Am I worthy enough to be used by God? I read this and I read that, and I just don't feel like I'm worthy. Listen to me. All of us are only who we are by one reason, the grace of God. And so many people battle that stuff of unworthiness, failing to see that God has already accepted you in Christ. You cannot be any more accepted. All of us probably in one sense or another feel unworthy. You husband that was driving to church with your wife today and yelling at her, I'm sure you feel unworthy. You teenagers that were rebelling about what you were going to wear to church when mom told you to wear it, I'm sure you feel a little unworthy. No, scratch that. You probably don't. (laughs) (laughs) But I want you to see that what God in His sovereignty does is He chooses people. Not based on because of how righteous a person is. But I will say this, and I have to address this, because one of the great characteristics that both Mary and Joseph show in their life is a reverence and a respect towards God, a fear of the Lord. In fact, both Mary and Joseph have displayed that, and you get that in in the story, that there is this fear of God, that every person that knows the Lord should have a healthy fear of God. You say, well, what is the fear of God? A fear of God is respecting God so much that you obey his word. I mean, think about this for a moment. Mary and Joseph were betrothed to be married. Talk about messing up your plans. Mary now is all of a sudden going to be pregnant out of wedlock? Joseph's now going to have to contend to this, and in the Jewish culture, there were really only two steps to marriage. Some want to say there were three, the engagement, the betrothal, and the marriage, but really there were only two steps. Betrothal engagement is included in the betrothal process, but be- being betrothed to somebody meant that you were with them for a year. There was a year-long period before the actual wedding took place. Not that you were with them. In fact, Mary and Joseph probably saw very little of each other during that time. Mary actually went up and spent three months with Elizabeth. So when she comes back, she's about four months pregnant. How are you going to hide that? But to be betrothed is, is basically a commitment that you were going to be married in a, about a year from now. And to get out of that wedding, it took a divorce process. It wasn't like the dating game in the United States. It wasn't like the engagement process in the United States. You, you pop a ring to your loved one on Christmas. Hopefully it's a big enough rock to swear. And you pop the, say, okay, we're going to set the date. But if June 15th does not come around... If you guys decide that, hey, this just isn't for us, I'm bailing on this relationship, there is no going down to the courthouse and filing for a divorce. But that wasn't the case in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, when you were betrothed, you were there for a year, and about a year later, you had the wedding. Those were the two significant events in the relationship. And... Joseph's character really stands out in in this Matthew chapter 1. His character really stands out because here she is pregnant, and Joseph, not knowing, what are you going to think? There's only one conclusion you can come to. I didn't sleep with Mary. Somebody did because she's pregnant. You don't come up four months pregnant out of the blue. It isn't the water that you drink. You that have failed to take a drink of water in our drinking fountains through all those baby dedications, you don't, that was a joke, so you can take a drink, you're not going to get pregnant. Maybe. <laughs> but here, Joseph, in many sections of, of Judaism, it was mandatory to get a divorce. Do you see what's going on with Joseph here? If, if there was a pregnancy prior to the wedding, then that was a mandatory divorce in most circles. And so what Joseph is trying to do, and this is where his character shines, he's trying to do what's right according to the law and what he believes to be righteous. But at the same time, he is showing compassion on Mary because he's wanting to divorce her privately. In their culture, if you were caught in adultery, that could mean death by stoning, although it was rarely practiced in the time of Jesus. It was still in law. And so... Here he is, a stand-up guy, rather than drag her before the leaders and say, this woman committed adultery and wanting revenge. He doesn't respond that way. He doesn't respond that way. I don't know how some of you would respond if, if something like this took place, and yet he's wanting to do what's right and righteous and protect Mary
0: at the same time.